In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue our study of the uh, Holy Scriptures, um, speaking about specifically some of the alleged discrepancies of the Holy Bible. Whenever we come to speak about the infallibility of the Bible, one of the first things that we maybe we might hear from people who are opposed to this idea is the idea of specific contradictions and discrepancies and problems, issues with the scripture. Someone might come and bring up a certain verse and say, this verse contradicts this other verse. Uh, and because of this, they believe that the scripture is not inspired and they have no, you know, they don't believe in it. They don't believe that this is the word of God. And then we get maybe put in a position where we are having to defend the scripture. And maybe in some cases we know what the answer is, we know how to respond, but maybe in other cases we don't know how to respond. Um, and so we want to speak a little bit about these alleged discrepancies and how we can um, understand them and how we can respond. So one very common thing that people do is to take things out of context, right? It's easy to, to, to imagine that there is contradictions because we take a limited statement about something and another limited statement that is a very specific, uh, that's not trying to incorporate all of the context of the situation. Because again, the, the Word of God is not trying to, uh, to make a defense for itself, right? It's not trying to, to, to explain everything such that the language is so, so precise that no one can read into it any kind of contradiction, right? In order for us to understand and to benefit from the Holy Scripture, we have to read it with faith. Right? And we have to read it with trust. That we are trusting that this is the word of God and this is why we are reading it. Right? So, so, so it's not trying to defend itself by giving every explanation that, that could possibly to defend against every possible kind of attack or opposition to it. So one thing that people do is they take things out of context. Um, more significant than that is violating the context of belief. Christian understanding is a synthesis of many beliefs and Bible teachings are often interpreted through this background belief which has been synthesized. Meaning what? Like you're already coming to it as a Christian. You're already coming to it with uh, an understanding of other concepts and other things. So when you read it, you, 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 you fit it into your prior understanding and knowledge of the Christian faith as opposed to coming to it as just a statement in the void, in the vacuum, without any background, without any context, without any understanding. When you read it, you might not understand. For instance, there are many scriptures uh, where, for instance, where the Lord Jesus Christ says, my father is greater than I, right? My father is greater than I. How can we understand my father is greater than I Right? When at the same time we're saying, well, we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. How is it that we can say the Father is greater than I? How do we understand it? How do we interpret it? So someone who doesn't have prior understanding of the Christian belief that we believe the Father and the Son are, are coessential, are of one essence, right? Um, we'll look at that and conclude, based on that limited statement, um, that, oh, well, it must mean then that the Father is greater than the Son right? But that's not what it means. Such a synthesis may include other facts not directly related to the contradiction in question, but nevertheless relevant. 
When the critic proposes a contradiction, he ought to do so from within the context of this background belief. By failing to do this, he or she merely imposes alien concepts as if they belong. Meaning, you, you have to understand what is the, the full message of the scripture, and then you can ask questions of how does this verse jive with this other verse. But coming to it completely without that background knowledge, you're very often to come up with erroneous conclusions. And uh, let me give you an example, okay? Joe is recorded as saying that Sam is not his son, okay? But elsewhere, he is recorded as saying that Sam is his son. So this is a contradiction, right? In one place it says Sam is his son, somewhere else it's saying Sam is not his son. But what if one's background belief about Joe and Sam includes the belief that Sam is Joe's adopted son, right? So in one context, we can say, yes, um, uh, Sam is Joe's son, and in another context we can say, no, Sam is not actually his son. Without understanding what is meant, right, and again, the language of the Bible is not so precise for us to be able to take one statement out of context and be able to f have a full understanding of everything that's being communicated just from that one verse, right? By ignoring the context, this belief provides, uh, this belief provides one perceives contradictions where there are none. In one case, the word son is used in one way, and in another case, the word son is used in a different way, right? Critics assume that the biblical accounts are exhaustive in all details and intended to be precise, but this is rarely the case, right? It's rarely the case. And if you think about when you are telling a story about something that happened, you rarely include every detail. You're maybe focusing on an important thing that you wanting to communicate, but you don't include every detail. You're assuming that the person who you are telling the story to believes you and believes that you're a trustworthy person, and you are just focusing on the facts that you want them to know. As such, critics build on a faulty assumption and perceive contradictions where there are none. Let's say that the only records of Joe speaking about Sam are the two cases where he affirms and denies that Sam is his son. Certainly, Joe said many other things in his life, but they were not recorded, including the fact that he adopted a boy and named him Sam, right? So the fact that he, he has a whole other chapter of his life where he adopted a son, and, and this is his son's name and so on, that's not something included in those two statements, right? So, so sometimes people who try to find contradictions in the Bible, they assume that the only statements that matter or the only truth clauses that matter are the things that are written in the Bible alone, in neglecting the fact that there's all kinds of other statements and events that happen even outside of the Bible. Here's another example. A real life example concerns a newspaper report that lists the time of, the, of birth of twin babies. The first was born at 1.40 a.m. and the second was born at 1.10 a.m. So how is that possible? How is it that the first was born at 1.40 a.m. and the second was born earlier at 1.10 a.m.? If this account did not have the added detail that the birth occurred during the night in which daylight savings ended, it would appear to be a real contradiction, right? This is today, right? Daylight savings ends today. So this is a good example for us, right? Someone reading the story without having that context would think that this is clearly an error clearly a contradiction, and would conclude in the end that this is false, right? But if they understand, there's more to the story, right? So the first thing we should do whenever we find something that appears to be a contradiction or discrepancy is we should start to ask more questions, right? What other ways of understanding it could there be? 
What other information do I need to know in order to understand the story or understand the statements that maybe I don't have? You have to know the whole story. And the accounts in the Holy Bible are rarely intended as exhaustive and precise descriptions. The Bible does not, in any specific story by itself, necessarily include all of the details and be super precise. This is one of the reasons that when we defer to the writings of the church fathers, they help to give us some context of understanding that maybe is not directly said, or maybe is assumed because of the culture, right? There are certain things about our culture that we know without having to state it, right? Like if I, if I mention something uh, culturally that we all kind of know what it is and, and think about it in a certain way, we, 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 we can maybe communicate or understanding without being explicitly precise describing all of the details of it because it's something that culturally we already share culturally we already know certainly at the time of Christ there were many cultural things that were understood by all the people that this that were not going to be explicitly stated in everything that the Lord said because it was already known it was something that was it was a it was a presupposition something that everyone already understood so so from a modern perspective when we look back at it maybe it sounds strange and foreign to us because we don't share that culture and we don't understand it but in order to understand the statements that Christ said or that um, the the stories that were said we have to have that understanding so that we can come to the correct conclusion critics seem to assume also that the Bible is written in one genre okay a literal and descriptive account right to dissect a statement and to try to show whether there's a contradiction or not you're trying you're assuming that everything that's written there is a literal and descriptive account of something okay while the Bible does contain literal and descriptive accounts which are not exhaustive in detail it also contains many other styles of composition for instance the Psalms communicate through poetry and poetry is by you know by definition not very precise at all it's kind of vague and ambiguous right and, and and the purpose of poetry is not to convey information right it has a different maybe the purpose of poetry is it's like a song it's to convey emotion it's to convey kind of an idea and a loftier way rather than a specific you know precise statement of truth right there are prophecies and the prophecies are also many times kind of vague and you can interpret them in different ways and they have multiple um, fulfillments maybe a prophecy was fulfilled you know at several different times in history right maybe a, a prophecy was fulfilled that King David said maybe it was fulfilled in the life of King David but it's also a messianic prophecy a prophecy that has to do with the life of Christ right so so you you can't take all of these different statements and genres and assume that we can read them literally and be able to get to the truth and understanding Many teachings and prophecies are in the form of hyperbole, meaning exaggeration and metaphor, right? To, to, to send a certain message, to make a certain point, there is exaggeration involved. Parables, they contain deeper messages. Again, like Christ, for instance, he used many parables. Parables are not true stories. They're not things that actually happen. He came up with a story to uh, teach a principle. These various styles are not intended to simply communi communicate information and thus cannot be used reliably to evaluate the presence of contradictions, right? How hard would it be to try to find contradictions between different Psalms, right? The Psalms are, are again, they're not literal descriptive accounts. They're, they're poetic, right? How do you find contradictions in, in poetry, right? The way that it's written. 
Also, how we interpret the text plays a big part in the existence of apparent contradictions, meaning, you know, when I read a specific text, I might assume that it has a certain meaning. When someone else reads it, they might think that it has a different meaning, right? So even if I can't agree on how to interpret the text, then again, I'm not going to have a good understanding of what it means. And I might think that there's contradictions when there's actually no contradictions. Also, some texts have different meanings, multiple meanings, right? It can mean different things in different contexts. For example, the word peace, the word peace can mean a lack of war, like physical peace. We are countries at peace, meaning we are not at war with another country. Or it can mean an internal sense of tranquility, that, that form of peace. Just as earlier, we used the example where the word son was used in two different ways. In one case, we said adopted son, considered son. And another said, at the time, we said, no, the word son has to be biological son only, right? So again, that one word has different meanings. And, and how do we know which meaning is being used, right? So again, maybe we think there's a contradiction, but there really isn't. Also, translation and culture aspects of the Hebrew idioms are not always captured in English translations. Anyone who knows Arabic, for instance, knows that there are some things that you cannot translate to English. And there are some things that if you translated it literally into English is nonsense. It has no, it, it doesn't convey the same meaning that it does to a person who is an Arabic speaking. This is true with any language, right? There are some phrases that don't have any meaning when you translate them to another language. And the same is true with Hebrew. Somebody takes something like this, an idiom, tries to translate it, and then tries to find contradiction with it, it's going to be, you know, it's going it, 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 to be very hard. Like, how are you going to come to the truth when you're, when you're doing something like that? Moreover, critics sometimes interpret customs and practices according to modern-day un understandings, which leads to error. Again, we have to understand the context of the culture. Also, there are copying errors that happen. Critics assume that the believer in biblical inerrancy also believes that copyists could, n could make no mistake. But this is not what we believe. We believe that there is possibly, there is, it's, it is possible to make a copy error, right? Even though, in practice, those errors are very, very minor, and they don't, they're not errors in anything significant, but you can find different versions of the same manuscript that have slight variations. Right? So that is an error in, in copying, copying from the original. It's our belief that the original documents were without error and were copied as faithfully as humanly possible. Thus, copyist errors are of little concern and are unlikely to result in significant changes. However, in some cases, there could be a minor copying mistakes. And if somebody looks and says, well, look, this thing, this says this and this says that. Like, for instance, there might be a number in one place and a different number in another place. Maybe there is an understanding. Maybe there's a way to understand that difference. Or maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it was a copying error. So what are some examples of alleged contradictions that are maybe some of the common ones that people um, kind of uh, will 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 quote and will say, hey, these are these are some errors. Okay. In Proverbs twenty six four, it says, "Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him." And in the very next verse, it says, "Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes." So someone coming to this with critical eyes, is going to say, well, the first statement, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him, that this is an absolute statement. 
right? This is an absolute statement that what King Solomon is communicating here in this proverb is an absolute statement that there is never a right time to answer a fool in, in his folly, right? And then the very next verse is the exact opposite. You should answer a fool according to his folly. So if we take these as absolute statements, that you must always act a certain way, you must have always a certain behavior, then yeah, these are clearly contradicting each other because they are saying opposite things. But in many cases, right, what, what is being said is there are times when it is appropriate to do one thing and there are other times when it is appropriate to do another thing. And you, the, 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 the reason you would choose one or the other, it's based on your discernment, based on what you believe is the right way to respond in the moment. For instance, even King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says there is a time for war and there's a time for peace. There's a time to speak and there's a time to refrain from speaking, right? There isn't just one right way to live life, right? There are different ways of approaching different situations. And maybe different people approach those situations slightly differently. There isn't one way. There are different ways, okay? To everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. So here, King Solomon, when he is conveying wisdom, he is saying, <coughs> be wise and discern. When is it right to answer a fool? And when is it right to remain silent, right? There is a time for this and there is a time for that. Another example, okay? How many of Jacob's family entered Egypt? In Genesis 46, 27, it says, And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Okay? So he's saying, how many of the house of Egypt, house of Jacob went to Egypt? 70. But in Acts 7, 14, it says, Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. Okay? So... In one place, it says 70 people. In another place, it says 75 people. How do we understand it? Well, in Genesis, this is what it says. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, because Joseph was already in Egypt, were two persons. So he had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. So here he's not counting the people, he's not counting Joseph, he's not counting the sons of Joseph or the wives of Joseph. Notice that the book of Genesis, the wives are not counted, but Jacob, Joseph, and his, two, oh, sorry, the, the, the sons of Joseph are, but the wives of Joseph are not. Okay? So this is a total of 66 plus 4, meaning the four are Jacob, Joseph, and his two sons, so that equals 70. And in Acts 7, it is written that Joseph sent and called his father and all his relatives. So Joseph, his wife, and his two sons are not counted since they were already in Egypt. So, in w so the way that the counting happens is different in each time. I don't, I, I, the goal here is to go through all the details of this. But just to understand that just because a number is quoted in one place and a different number in another place, or maybe the counting was a little different. It wasn't exactly the same number because the people were not counting the exact same way. Okay, so that's, that's an example. Another example. How many people died in the plague? In the plague in the book of Numbers. It says, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. This is in Numbers 25.9. But in 1 Corinthians 
It says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Okay, in one day, 23,000 fell. So how do we understand it? In one place, it says there were 24,000 that died in the plague. And another place, it's quoting the number 23,000. Okay, so the book of Numbers mentions the total number of people that died in the plague. The total number of people that died in the plague were 24,000. But in 1 Corinthians, it's saying in one day, 23,000 fell. So just because there's 23 f that fell one day, and then maybe the next day more people died, right? So the total would be 24,000. Also, keep in mind here that these are round numbers, right? For it to say 23,000, 24,000, does that mean exactly 23,000 and exactly 24,000? Maybe not. Maybe these are just round approximations of the exact number. Because again, the number here is not really the important part. The important part is, well, why did the people die of the plague? What is it that they did for the plague to come upon them? What it is, it is a book that's not trying to describe historical facts. It's a book that's trying to describe how to be saved. What is the hand? This is a handbook of salvation. Is God so interested in these specific numbers? Maybe not. Maybe these numbers are not super uh, important. So there's an approximation of the number. So we, we can't take kind of like a, a detail like this and say, well, see, look, there's a clear contradiction. In one place it said this, in one place it said this. Maybe in one place an approximate number is given, and in another place an actual number is given. And so there's a difference between those two numbers. People like to use these kinds of examples as gotchas. Say, oh, look, see, the Bible's wrong. So and if the Bible is wrong with the, these numbers, then that means the whole Bible is wrong in every aspect. The temptation of Christ. Okay? Critics claim that there is a contradiction between the sequence of the three temptations of our Lord that are mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So in the Gospel of Matthew, it's mentioned, and in the Gospel of Luke, it's mentioned that um, the Lord Christ was in the wilderness, and he was tempted by Satan, and he was given three temptations. Okay, In Matthew, the order of the temptations were, he, uh, he told Christ, turn the stones into bread. That was the first one in the wilderness. The second one, it says, in Jerusalem, throw yourself down from the temple, because the temple is in Jerusalem. It says he took him up to the heights of the temple. And then the, the third one is, worship Satan on the mountain, okay, which is also in the wilderness. So that's the order. The bread, turn stones into bread, throw yourself from the temple, and then worship Satan on the mountain. Those are the three temptations of Christ as described in the book of Matthew. In the book of Luke, the first one is still turn the stones into bread, as, as before, but now the next two are flipped. Worship Satan on the mountain comes second, and then throw yourself down from the temple comes third, right? So people will say, well, this is a contradiction, right? In one case, you're saying the order was this, and in another case, you're saying what happened was this. Well, again, maybe what's being communicated here is not exactly the same thing. In one place, right, in the book of Matthew, he's describing how it happened chronologically, Okay, first he was in the wilderness, and then he took him up to the temple in Jerusalem, and then back again in the wilderness. Whereas St. Luke, he is describing it geographically. He combined the two things that happened in the wilderness, and said these temptations happened in the wilderness, and then he spoke about the temptation that happened in Jerusalem, right? So the fact that he is describing it differently doesn't mean that it's an error. It means that he's describing it in a different way. He's categorizing them in a different way.
Example number five, the death of Judas. Okay, so in Matthew 27, 5, it says, Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple. So this is after Judas regretted betraying Christ, and he goes back to return the money that he had taken, the 30 pieces of silver, from the Pharisees. Okay, so it says, Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Okay, so he returned the money. Okay, then he went and he hanged himself. But in Acts chapter 1, it says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his entrails gushed out. So in the first verse, it makes it sound that he returned the money and he hung himself. That was, that was the whole thing. But in the second verse, it makes it sound that he purchased a field with the money, okay, and then he fell down on the ground and his guts burst out of his body, right? So how do we understand it? Well, which is the, which is the truth, okay? Well, actually, okay, Judas did hang himself, as, he, as it's mentioned in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, and then after he hung himself, his body fell down and his guts you know, came out of him, as mentioned in the book of Acts. As far as the field, okay, when it says he purchased the field, it doesn't mean that he physically went and he paid money for the field. Because what happened was, is the chief priests, they paid the money, bought the field, okay, with the money that, uh, that Judas returned to them, right? So he's saying he bought the field with the wages of iniquity means that like it was the money that he returned that was used to buy the field. Not that Judas explicitly went and purchased the field with the money that he had, right? So again, it's the way, it's the language, it's the way of speaking, all right? The chief priest physically went and paid the money and bought the field, as St. Matthew mentioned, but St. Luke wanted to link Judas to this act because he was the reason for it in the first place. The money that Judas returned was used by the Pharisees to buy the field. So in a sense, Judas bought the field, right? But it wasn't directly to buy it. It was the money that he returned was used to buy it. So again, there isn't a contradiction. It's just a different way of describing the same thing. In one case, being more literal, in the other case, being more metaphorical. Another example is related to when was Christ crucified, okay? It says what in John 19, now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered them, him to, be, uh, to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. So here in the book of John, it describes this whole encounter happening about the sixth hour of the day on Good Friday, okay? But in Mark chapter 15, it says, now it was the third hour and they crucified him, right? So was the crucifixion the third hour or was the crucifixion the sixth hour, okay? St. John said the sixth hour and the church teaches us to remember the crucifixion of the Lord every time we pray the prayer of the sixth hour. And this is even what we do on the prayers of Good Friday. We commemorate the crucifixion at the sixth hour. So why is it St. Mark was saying that he was crucified on the third hour? So on the third hour, 
this is when the Jews cried, crucify him, crucify him. This is what happened on the third hour. Okay? So even though the Roman soldiers physically crucified the Lord on the sixth hour, as mentioned by St. John, St. Mark associates this event and places the blame on the Jews. So the, the, the beginning of the crucifixion, the, 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 the decision to crucify Christ happened in the third hour. So in one case, he's saying it happened on the third hour, right? Which is really, it's saying now it was the third hour and they, the Jews, crucified him, meaning they called for his crucifixion. But the actual death of the Lord, the actual crucifixion on the cross, not the death, the crucifixion on the cross happened at the sixth hour. Another example about the resurrection. In Mark 16, it says, Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Okay? But in John 20, verse 1, it says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Okay, so had the sun already risen or was it still dark? What do you think? Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So in Mark 16, the sun had risen, so there was light. But in John 20, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So was it dark or was it light? So St. John mentioned the beginning of the journey. Okay, that, that they began to travel to the tomb when it was dark. But by the time they got to the tomb, it was light. Okay, so, so it's describing two different things. It's, it's one, in one case, it's describing when they arrived at the tomb, it was light. In another case, it was describing when they began to go to the tomb, it was still dark. Okay, um, another example is the conversion of St. Paul. In Acts 9, it says, And the men who journeyed with him, so this is when, when, when Saul is walking on the road to Damascus, and he hears the voice of Christ speaking to him, and sees light. Okay, So it says, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Meaning the voice of Christ, St. Paul heard it as a voice speaking to him. Okay, But here it's saying, uh, the, the people who were with him, they saw nothing, they didn't see anything, but they heard a voice. In Acts 22.9, it says, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So in Acts 9, he's saying they heard a voice, but in Acts 22, it says they did not hear a voice. So again, someone looks at this and say, well, this is a contradiction. How can you both hear a voice and not hear a voice? So, we have to understand the word that is translated here, what does it mean? In the second verse, it's, it's translated, the, the word here means to understand. Okay, So it means what? And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not understand the voice of him who spoke with me. Meaning they heard a noise and they heard something, but they did not understand. They did not understand what it was being said or what it was. Only St. Paul understood which then matches what the first verse is, okay? Because they heard a voice, but they did not see anyone. They heard, but they didn't understand. So these are just very, very few examples. There's so many different examples like this where people can take two different verses and, and try to 
find some contradiction between the two of them. So it's important for us to number one, realize that when people come to us with these, uh, with these apparent contradictions, that we don't get nervous about it. No, there's an explanation for everything. Everything has an explanation. It's not like that these are things that are there. People are going to come and say, I got you. See how the word of God is actually false, right? Because they're going to come and present us with this thing. No, there's, there's explanations. Let me talk to you about the explanation. Let me go research it and come back to you and I'll tell you how we understand these things that you are saying are contradiction. And for us as well, we should not be concerned. Okay, maybe I don't know the answer, but there, there is an answer. Yes. So, so we, we wouldn't say that the author remembered it incorrectly because the author is the Holy Spirit, right? So, so when, the, when, the, when the Holy Spirit is inspiring the writers, that means that whatever they write is going to be accurate. And that's what we mean when we say that something is inf infallible. It's infallible because it has no error in it, right? So, so we, we interpret it and we understand it as there are many, there are many ways to look at something and see how it's not it's not inaccurate it's just written in different in a different style in a different way focusing on different things so so we don't you know we don't we don't consider it to be an error yes yes Yes, copying human errors, and then of course when you have translation, and you add translation into it, now you've got many different English versions of the Bible, and some of them are more faithful to the original text and more in the literal translation, whereas some of them are very, very, um, they take many liberties in interpretation and paraphrasing and things like that. So definitely when it comes to translation, there could be errors depending on what version you're using. Yes. It was not dictated. And that's different than like say in Islam. Because in Islam, I believe God dictated the Quran word by word. And that's why in Islam, the, the, the Arabic language is so important and necessary because they believe that God dictated in Arabic. Okay, so it's like holy because it is the language of God, right? Whereas we don't see it this way. God did not dictate in Hebrew or in Greek any of these words of course there are some quotations but those quotations are yes attributed to god but the the book itself is written from the mind of the author but we believe that god guided the author so that they would not make mistakes in in recall and in, in the writing and in, in writing incorrect things and in, in, in forgetting things and, and whatnot
Okay. We can pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask, O God, that you help us to understand the importance of the Holy Scriptures in our lives, and to read it and understand it and apply it, O Lord, in our everyday lives, in so many of the situations that we deal with. Let it be a source of hope, and let it be a source of direction and guidance. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.